Um, so if you ever need a break from Atlanta, please feel free to come visit us by the ocean in Charleston. Um, and there's been some discussion in Tennessee and Florida about panels and some crazy doctor stuff. Y'all should come to South Carolina because the good news in South Carolina is employer and carrier directs and controls medical care. So join us. Come with us. Um, so I got five topics I'm going to talk about. The first two are kind of more administrative and maybe more helpful to you guys. Um, so the 150-day rule deals with the um, termination of, or, or beginning and termination of wage benefits. So within 150 days, and this is important, within 150 days, uh, for any reason under uh, 42.9260, the adjuster can unilaterally terminate wages. So keep track of the 150 days because if he comes back to work, go ahead and terminate his wages. Just file a form 15, you don't have to call us, just get it done and terminate those wages. The trick is, and why I put this in here, is the penalty is really high if you improperly terminate wages after 150 days. So 42.9260 states that an evidentiary hearing and commission approval are required prior to termination or suspension of wage benefits after 150 days. Only way you can do it is by Form 17, which is essentially something that you sign and the claimant signs saying he agrees that you can suspend or terminate his wages, or you got to get an order from the commission. Um, so the penalty is 25% of the wages that were improperly withheld. So for example, if you, after 150 days, you improperly terminate the wages, and say $10,000 worth of wages accrue, you're going to owe $2,500 on top of the $10,000 that you now owe. So it's an important rule because the penalty is high. So pay attention to your 150 days. The Form 50, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the Form 50. However, uh, the Form 50 acts, it's one form that acts in two totally separate ways. So you've got these two little boxes at the bottom of the Form 50. It's 13A and 13B, and they drastically alter the course of the claim. So you've got to pay attention to which of these tiny two boxes are checked at the very bottom of the form. 13A, you've got just a notice of claim, which does not require any affirmative action in as far as the commission is concerned. So you don't have to do anything with the Workers' Compensation Commission. It might, you know, you get a notice of claim in, that might trigger some internal things that you need to get done. Um, for example, uh, a Form 12A, if you don't already know about the claim, uh, you know, Form 50 is sometimes the first time you even know about the claim. And so the Form 12A is what you have to file at your first report of injury. You've got to file that with the commission as soon as you're on notice of the claim. So if you don't file your Form 12A timely, you get a $200 fine. So make sure you're paying attention to uh, getting your Form 12As filed as well. Um, so if you get 13B checked, you have a hearing request. This is super important to pay attention which box is checked because if you have a hearing request, then you only have 30 days to file your Form 51 response. If you do not file your Form 51 response timely, you lose all of your affirmative defenses. So all of those are waived. Now it's not, and I'll put it on here, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, if you fail to timely file your Form 51, 
It's a problem. You lose affirmative defenses. However, it does act as a general denial of the claim. So, if you're still trying to deny the claim on causation, you're okay. Um, there's, there's things that can be done. Um, but if you had an intoxication defense or a notice defense, those are affirmative defenses that you lose if you do not timely file that 51. So as soon as you get a Form 50 and that 13B box hearing request is checked, make sure you're getting that out to your defense counsel as soon as possible so they can appropriately prepare for their response and answer. Um, the next one, and, and these next three are just some new cases uh, that have some implications that are important for everyone to know. Uh, Wilson versus Charleston County School District. Um, this is a case uh, that really highlights the importance of settling claims on a clincher. And I'll, if, you, if you don't practice or, or uh, handle cases in South Carolina, the clincher is synonymous or equal to a full and final settlement in any other state. Leave it to South Carolina to make up some crazy name for a full and final settlement. But it's super prevalent and in fact, some of our regulations include the term clincher instead of full and final settlement. Um, but, you know, we also call our prosecutors solicitors, so I don't know what to tell you. Um, so in Wilson, the employer carrier settled indemnity uh, on a compensable spine claim in 2008. Uh, it medical, so indemnity only essentially means medicals left open and the one-year change of conditions left open. Uh, the two ways that typically happens is you go to a hearing and uh, the case is decided at a hearing or you settle on a Form 16A which leaves medical open and the one-year change of condition. In January of 2009, right before the one-year change of condition runs, claimant files a Form 50 but does not request a hearing. So it checks Box 13A, just a notice of claim. So they, the Form 50 alleges depression. Uh, two years later, so now we're three years removed from when indemnity was settled. Uh, the claimant files another Form 50 and requests a hearing. The case is heard in June of 2011. Of course, employer carrier argue, hey, we got a two-year statute of limitations. This is time bar. Well, this goes, I'm pretty sure, to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the court finds that the claimant satisfied the one-year requirement because they filed that Form 50 in January of 2009. So they put the carrier, the employer carrier on notice. Um, so essentially now, if, if you don't settle on a clincher and you've only settled on a Form 16A or the, the claim was settled at a hearing, you really gotta be paying attention to that one year because apparently what, it's, what you're telling plaintiff's attorneys and claimants is all you gotta do is just raise it. Just file the notice of claim within one year alleging whatever you want and then, you know, you got as long as you want to then come back and create some injury that you had. Um, so, what does this mean? Always settle claim, or always try to settle claims on a clincher. Clincher closes out, your one-year change of condition closes out medical, it's a full and final settle. However, uh, there are times where you just can't settle a case on a clincher. So, if you have only settled indemnity, or you settled on Form 16A, make sure you're calendaring that one year to ensure you're seeing what's coming in. Because if you get a Form 50 within that one year and they don't request a hearing, then you need to be proactive in getting that to defense counsel and ensuring you're requesting a hearing because you want to be now super proactive in getting this case 
or whatever there's a new issue has, uh, that has been alleged, you want to get that resolved immediately. Um, the second case is the Vought the University of South Carolina. Um, this is an interesting case because it brings about a new case law in South Carolina. Um, so the claimant was a Spanish professor, professor at USC Lancaster. Um, she leaves her work to walk to her car in the parking lot. Uh, in between her car and the parking lot, so you've got a public roadway. So there's the university building she was at, public roadway, and then a university-maintained parking lot. But she's got to cross the public roadway to get to the parking lot. Um, of course, she's struck by a car while crossing the roadway. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so what the court rules is they join the majority of jurisdictions and re officially recognize the divided premises rule, which is new in South Carolina. Previously, there was no divided premises rule. There was the coming and going rule, uh, which still exists, but now there's also this new rule. Um, so essentially, if you're an employer, and, and a lot of employers are like this, you have a place of business, but they maintain an off-site parking where your employees, that's the only place they can park. So now they've got to cross non-employer non controlled areas to get to work. Um, if they get injured in between the employer controlled parking lot and their place of work, uh, the divided premises rule is now going to apply and you're going to be on the hook for that. Um, so, uh, and one of the things I noted here on this on the next slide is uh, part of the court's ruling hinges on the fact that uh, the employer created this need for the employees to cross this public thoroughfare. So this was her only place to park. Uh, that's the only way she could park and then cross this road to get to where she had to work. So part of their ruling was if you're creating that need for your employees to cross this public roadway, you're on the hook for it. Um, so what can you do? you got to figure out ways as an employer to mitigate these risks. Um, so for example, in this situation, probably would have been super helpful if they had a bridge going over that road to protect these employees. Um, and hopefully I've been quick enough for you guys. I want to keep this thing moving. Um, is Clemens versus Lowe's Home Centers. Um, I put this as last because this has really changed a bunch of things in South Carolina. It's created a whole host of issues, and I think we're going to be dealing with this case for, for a long time to come. Um, so in September of 2010, um, Clemens assisting a customer at Lowe's. He slips and falls, severely injures his back, winds up with a uh, C57 fusion, so two-level fusion. Um, gets a, you know, the AMA guides are odd. And they give this, there's no back rating in South Carolina. You've got a scheduled injury provision. And uh, if you only have one injury to one body part, it falls under the scheduled injury provision. Uh, so the back is it. There's no regional impairments. There's no cervical spine under the scheduled injury provision. There's no lumbar spine. It's just the back. And the AMA guides doesn't provide a rating for the back. It just gives this whole person rating that you then got to convert to either the cervical spine or the lumbar spine. Of course, 25% whole person rating converts to something crazy, 71% to the cervical spine. Well, he's given permanent work restrictions, which Lowe's accommodates, and they bring him back to work. And he's now back working full-time at his pre-injury wage. Well, he, of course, the employer, they get some IME opinions, he gets some more IME opinions, 
All of the medical professionals find that he has suffered more than 50% impairment to his back, which is important because in South Carolina, under the scheduled injury provision, if there's more than a 50% loss of use to the back, then the employee is presumed to be permanently and totally disabled. Now this presumption is rebuttable, so that means the employer can put together evidence to say, hold on, we know he's got more than 50%, but we've got all this evidence to say he's not permanently and totally disabled. Well, unfortunately for Lowe's, the Supreme Court found that there was no evidence in the record that Clemens suffered anything less than 50% impairment. They said the medical evidence all pointed to the fact that he'd suffered an impairment greater than 50%, and the defense had not rebutted the presumption of permanent total disability. Um, so what the court was saying is essentially, if your only evidence is that you brought the claimant back to work full-time, he's earning his pre-injury wage, uh, that's not going to be enough. What they don't want is uh, some ruling to discourage claimants from returning to the workforce is what they used in the case. That's the language they talked about. Um, so the takeaways are, are many because it's got some, uh, and I won't get into the weeds of it, but certainly if you have additional questions after this, I, I'm happy to talk with you more about it. But essentially, you're going to have to come up with something more than just bringing the employee back to work. Um, so if they've suffered a back injury, and you bring them back to work, and that injury resulted in an impairment of more than 50%, you're going to have to probably get some doctor to say, um, you know, they're not, there's, there's not a 50% impairment, or that, yeah, they're 50% or more impaired, but that they're not permanently and totally disabled, and here are all the reasons why they can continue to work and will be a uh, productive member of the workforce moving forward. Um, and so, again, if you have a back injury and it looks like it's going to lead to a fusion or you're about to provide surgery for a fusion, you need to be super proactive in going ahead and getting your book rehab experts, your uh, labor market surveys, everything you can do to show that this person is capable and able of returning to work. And then start finding a good IME doctor to provide um, a medical opinion about his impairment, his future ability to work. Um, the other issue... Um, and again, if you have questions afterward that we can talk about is the fact that um, under the South Carolina Schedule Engine Provision, there is only the back. So the AMA guys are a little incongruous right now with providing an appropriate impairment rating for the back in the, under this Schedule Engine Provision because there is no scheduled injury for a cervical spine or lumbar spine. Um, Again, I don't want to waste any more time, but if you have questions about anything I've talked about, please see me afterwards, and I'm happy to talk to you about anything you want. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Mark.